today in Mark chapter 9, we come to a rarity in Mark's gospel, Jesus's teachings. Uh, now, we're going to read the whole portion today, uh, but I want to start with the section's first and last statements. Okay, so if you're looking on the screen or you're looking in the Bible that's in your hand, look in verse 30 with me. It says, verse 30, then they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, fast forward with me all the way to the end of this section, which includes Jesus' teaching in verse 49 and 50. It says, for everyone, Jesus said, will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, these are the two statements that bookend our passage. Two statements. The first one was hard for the disciples to understand. The last one is hard for us to understand. The first one was about the cross, which, of course, the disciples at that stage could not yet comprehend. The, the last statement, though, was all about salt. Everyone will be salted with fire, Jesus said. Salt is good. If salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again, he asked. And then, have salt in yourselves, he commanded. Now, some wonder if Jesus was simply collecting all of his parables and loose teachings that included the word salt, putting them together in one form at the end of his teaching. Uh, I don't know if that's what he was doing. But one statement stands out as easier to understand than the rest of the statements about salt. It's the last phrase. Have salt within yourselves. Have salt within yourselves. He said this after speaking of those who would be salted with fire. And the fire that he'd most recently been talking about in this passage, and we'll get to it, is the unquenchable fire of hell. Fire and salt are similar. And they both, especially to the people in that ancient culture, have a purifying effect. Each one, fire and salt, eradicates impurities. So when Jesus told them to have salt within themselves, it was his way of showing them their need for a purifying fire to develop within. You see, on the road with Jesus, the disciples, we'll see, had the wrong fire burning within. They had the fires of self-promotion and self-glory burning within. The corrupting influence of pride had its way inside them. But that growing fire within them needed to be replaced with a different and all-consuming passion. And we also, like the disciples, are Jesus's kingdom ambassadors. There's a kind of internal fire that each of us must have, a salt that permeates within, shaping us internally for Christ's mission. Now, where does this whole fire or purifying salt within start? Where does it begin? 
Well, it starts with an understanding of the cross. You see, Jesus' gospel is the never-ending goldmine of study and meditation that the disciples need. We are to spend our lifetimes trying to understand, comprehend the riches of Romans and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and beyond. These books in the New Testament ground us in explaining what the cross of Christ produced, produces today, and will produce in the future. The disciples, though, didn't understand the cross yet, as we saw. They were afraid, it says in verse 32, to ask Jesus what he meant when he said these things. Now, one day, thankfully, they did understand the cross, and they rocked the world with its message. Uh, And they did so because they figured out what Jesus had done, and it produced a fire within them. And eventually, they embraced the teachings that Jesus gave in this section we're about to go through together. These teachings are the result of having Jesus' salt, Jesus' holy fire within you. And we need each one of these things today. So let's observe what a holy and purifying salt within will do to us today. Here's the first thing. Number one, it will cause you to serve for the name of Jesus. It will cause you to serve for the name of Jesus. Let's read in verse 33. It says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So here we have Jesus. And as he's journeying with his disciples, he's alone with his thoughts out in front of his men. Perhaps he's ruminating on his time with Moses and Elijah up on the Mount of Transfiguration or the voice of the Father there. The disciples, though, they're trailing Jesus. And as they trail him, they have a discussion amongst themselves. It turned into an argument, it says in verse 34. And what did they fight about? Well, they wrestled over the question, who of them was the greatest? Now, when they came to their quick stopover in Capernaum, Jesus asked them what they were talking about on the road. You know, he knew what they were talking about. They knew what they were talking about, but they were embarrassed by themselves. So they kept silent at that moment. Perhaps Peter, James, and John had devolved into a little bit of pride. I mean, after all, Jesus had taken them up to the mountaintop for the moment of transfiguration. Maybe they were telling the rest of the disciples that they'd made friends with Moses and Elijah. It's not hard to imagine each one of these men stating their case for greatness. Jesus, though, responded in verse 35 to what they wouldn't confess. They didn't say anything, but he knew what was going on and said, If anyone will be first or would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
Now, his words made it clear that he knew exactly what they discussed on the road. And his teaching was a clear rebuke of their self-promotion. Now, to drive this point home, Jesus looked around for an example. And a nearby child fit the bill. It's likely that they were in Peter's house. And maybe this was one of Peter's sons or daughters. Jesus took this little child and told the disciples to receive people like this child. Now, don't miss the lesson. He wanted his disciples to learn how to serve others. True greatness comes in serving the least. And greatness is what they said they wanted on that road. So Jesus told them about great service. Receive people, he said, like this child. Now, this example that Jesus used is difficult for us to follow because we live in a society that adores children. You know, there's no sacrifice too big for our kids. Children are the future, we say. They're powerful, too. So powerful that major corporations spend a lot of money advertising to little children. That's power. They don't even make money, but the corporations of the world know that they dictate where the money goes. But these were not the attitudes in Jesus' time. Many children died well young. And they were seen as needy, as a liability. <clears throat> All their teaching and training was designed to get them to a place where they could contribute. And it was contributors that that society admired. And since children contributed less and needed others to survive, they weren't revered like those who contributed much. So the child in that society was a good picture of a person in need. Jesus was telling his disciples that greatness comes in being last, the servant of all. And who did they need to serve? People who needed their care and service, just like this child needed the aid of his parents. But Jesus went on. He said, when you serve someone in, in his name, you are receiving Jesus himself. And when you receive Jesus, you're receiving the Father, verse 37. In other words, to serve those in need is, in effect, serving God himself. And serving God is what great people do. Now, remember the salt, okay? I talked to you about it earlier. It needed to be within them. Like fire, it needed to purify all things and grow within. If it did, good things would be produced. And here's the first it would produce a strong internal desire to serve on behalf of Christ's name. The disciple of Christ burns for the name of Christ. It makes them want to do anything and everything for his name as an ambassador of his name. We stop trying to make a name for ourselves and begin wanting to see his name glorified. This is really the essence of our church's vision. Jesus famous. We want everything we do through our everyday lives to reflect the goodness of Christ. But what does serving those in need look like in our context? You know, Jesus used a child as an example, but I don't think he expected us to stop there. The internal desire to help those in need can manifest itself in 
feeding the hungry, of course, or helping in kids' ministry. But the question we need to ask is, is there more? And I believe that there is. Really, in one sense, each one of us needs to pray and ask the Spirit of God to show us the people in need that are around us that he's asking us to extend ourselves for. But I want to offer one suggestion to you today. Your workplace. You see, you might have an, a, an established career or you might be in school because you want to establish a career. You might work from home or your work might be what happens in your home. No matter your situation, no matter your workplace, if you haven't already, I want you to see your work as a significant way to serve those in need. You see, when you go to work as merely a way to make a paycheck, you're missing the point. Even though your workplace feels the effects of the fall like everyone else's workplace, it's a great way and place for you to love your neighbor. You see, if you do it for yourself only, you're not allowing the salt of Christ to get its way into your heart. But once a holy desire consumes you, you will see everything you do as a way to live out the name. The gadgets that you create, the minds that you shape, the employees that you hire, and the services that you offer can all be done as an act of service to those in need. And this is a way to honor God with your life. Part of the reason I mention this today with this text is that many leaders have misunderstood Jesus' words. They haven't understood how to be a leader, but also the servant, the one who comes last. They, they felt it must be one or the other. I'm either a servant or I'm a leader. But Jesus was showing these men a new way. His leaders, his people could serve. And the greatest leaders the world has ever known served the people around them. So this first teaching from Jesus today shows us that we must serve for Christ's name, for Jesus famous. All right, what's the next thing that this internal drive produces? Number two, it enlarges fellowship. It enlarges fellowship. This burning within, this holy desire, it enlarges fellowship. Let me tell you what I mean from the next verses. Verse 38. John said to him, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Okay, here Jesus spoke to his disciples uh, about receiving people. First, uh, like the child, you know, in his name. And that phrase, it seems to have triggered John. Uh, he remembered how he and some of the disciples, at least, had recently tried to stop someone who is casting out a demon in Jesus' name. Now, remember how last week we, came, we saw an episode where Jesus' disciples had no power to cast out a demon. 
Here we discover a further reason for their powerlessness. John said, verse 38, that he tried to stop this other man from casting out demons because he was not following us, he said. Somehow following Jesus had turned into following the disciples. John didn't like this rogue operator, even if he was successful. So he tried to stop him. Now immediately, Jesus corrected John. He said, do not stop, do not stop him in verse 39. It's actually written in a tense that carries it forward to our present day, meaning something like, don't stop people like him. But why shouldn't they stop this man or people like him? Jesus said in verse 40, here's why. The one who is not against us is for us. This man was casting out demons in my name, but even a cup of water given in my name will receive a forever reward. In other words, this man was doing something great in Jesus' name, and he would not be forgotten. He'd be rewarded by God. Now, nothing about this passage feels, at least initially, modern or applicable to us. I mean, when was the last time that you couldn't sleep because you worried about whether a particular exorcist was doing their exercising in the right way? It's just not something that we worry about. But this passage is important today. From it, we learn how an inner fire or salt or desire for holiness will produce an enlarged fellowship. We'll have fellowship with more Christians if that holy desire is within us. The disciples should have viewed this independent man as an ally and not a threat. Though they didn't even know each other, they were on the same team. Now, this idea, of course, must be balanced by proper tests of orthodoxy. People who believe the wrong things about Jesus aren't on our team just because they use his name in some way. But we should still be impressed with the large fellowship Jesus encouraged. Paul was the kind of man who understood this in his apostolic ministry. He rejoiced at the preaching of Christ, even if done with, by people that he otherwise did not see eye to eye with. When he was in prison one time, he wrote to the Philippian church, and he heard of other preachers freely roaming their region preaching. And he said in Philippians 1 verse 15 and 18, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. This was a very hopeful and charitable view that Paul adopted. He was happy that the cross was being preached. He knew that the motives of some that were preaching were off but he was glad that Christ was proclaimed. I think this is a helpful word in our modern time. You know, the presidential election, the social upheaval of our time, and the debate about reopening all have the potential to divide God's people. On top of this, we already have denominations, doctrines, and methodologies that can also divide us. Given all this, unity is a miracle. 
Now, in the midst of this, we must remember that gospel-loving, Jesus-centered, Bible-studying, God-fearing people will, at times, disagree. And if we lose our love for one another, no matter what happens, we've already lost. Ever increasingly, we must learn how to hold our convictions while still loving those who are in Jesus' tent. Paul said in Romans 14, 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We aren't to judge each other in disputed areas, nor are we to harm or hinder the faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ. John and the rest of the disciples needed to burn with a passion for enlarged fellowship. So we've come to see how this inward desire produces service for the name of Christ and enlarge fellowship in the name of Christ. But what else does it produce? Here's our third and final point. Number three, it produces proactive combating of sin. It proactively combats sin. Let's read this ominous passage next. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, Jesus said, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now the whole passage is sobering for various reasons. The major reason is Jesus's persistent mention of hell. He brings it up three times. He calls it the unquenchable fire. Quoting from the book of Isaiah, he calls it a place where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Hell's suffering is eternal. The word Jesus used for hell in this passage is the Greek form of the Hebrew words that mean the valley of Hinnom. Uh, this was a ravine on Jerusalem's south side. And over the years, this ravine became the city dump. The fires in that dump perpetually burned the refuse that was thrown into it. They always smoldered. Over time, it became an appropriate symbol of divine judgment. So we know that this is a sobering passage with a serious warning. But I'm sure you've also instinctively understood Jesus' words about millstones and dismemberment of body parts as hyperbole. You know, we're not meant to size people up for their one-way journey to the bottom of Monterey Bay. Nor are we to sharpen our hatchets, waiting for the inevitable lapse into sin. So what was Jesus meaning when he said these things? Well, with the inner drive of holiness propelling us, we should live in a way that proactively combats sin. You know, we don't want to be those who stumble the faith of others, like in the millstone passage. 
nor do we want to stumble ourselves. This is a statement about a personal drive for holiness. And you've got to have this passion within you if you expect to make it far in the Christian life. You must understand what the cross of Jesus Christ has done for you. If you've trusted Jesus, you've been joined to him so completely that you died with him, were buried with him, and are raised to newness of life with him. There is no separating you and your Lord. Your identity is wrapped up in him. And today, your new inner person, who you are in Christ, battles your body of sin. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, all the body parts that Jesus mentioned in this passage. They come together as instruments of temptation. Using them in the wrong way, you could be drawn into behavior that is inconsistent with who you now are in Christ Jesus. The person with holy fire inside of them is not perfect. They will battle sin and sometimes they will lose. But they know that the sacrifices that they must make to obtain a holy life are well worth it. Dismemberment, of course, is hyperbole. It isn't the way. But an accountability partner might be the way. Now, when the priests of the Old Testament were ordained, they offered a sacrifice for their sins. And the blood of the sacrifice was placed on their ears, on their hands, and on their feet. It was a way to demonstrate their imperfections and that the blood had now purchased them. Everything they consumed, everything they did, and everywhere they went was now under the blood. God owned them. And believers should see themselves in the same way. We have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We must long for holiness. We must agree with Jesus that it's better to enter life lame than hell whole. We must think any hardship on the journey to holiness is worth the sacrifice because we are getting life in return. So let's conclude this whole thing by looking again at the salt statements that Jesus made in verse 49 and 50. For everyone, he said, will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace, he said, with one another. The disciples at the beginning of this teaching were not at peace with one another. On that road, they argued about who was the greatest. But if this salt could get inside them, this holy fire that burns for purity of heart could get inside them. Everything would change. They would serve the least. They would have fellowship with believers they didn't agree with on all points. And they would battle against sin within. And all that would lead them to verse 50. Be at peace with one another. May God do the same for us. Let me conclude with some questions of application for you. Number one, do you have a desire to be great in God's kingdom? Notice that Jesus did not rebuke his disciples for a desire for greatness, but he showed them how. Number two, how does Jesus encourage you toward a great life? What are some of the acts of service that Jesus 
pushes you towards in this life of greatness. Number three, who are the people of need that Jesus has put in front of you? Pause, pray, ask the Spirit to show you. Number four, what outlets, sites, apps, or channels tempt you to smaller fellowship? In other words, when you receive their streams, your area of fellowship gets smaller and smaller. You cut yourself off from more believers, more Christians, because of that uh, information you're exposing yourself to. And number five, is there an area of sin you need to aggressively attack with the help of the Holy Spirit?